What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. During my sophomore year of college, my parents got me my dream car, a Chevy Cobalt. If you're sensing some sarcasm, you're exactly correct. I mean, can you just imagine me as a a young college student, the, the, the ideal car that I've always wanted was a, you know, Chevy Cobalt with roll-down windows and manual locks and a stick shift. Um, I'm not trying to sound like an, um, you know, pampered millennial or anything, uh, but, but anyways, I, I say that to, to say that my parents were very generous and they gave me a car and that's awesome. But the stipulation behind that was, you got to understand, my dad was trying to show me how to drive a stick shift on his F-150, and I just couldn't get the hang of it. I don't know, just couldn't deal with it. And he said, in order to have this car, you've got to learn how to drive it. And so somehow, by God's grace, I learned how to drive it. Now I guess I can drive pretty much any stick shift, which is a good thing. But then he said, the other stipulation is I had to maintenance it and service it. And so I had to learn how to change the oil. And so he showed me one time, and, and I, I figured it out. And there at my parents' house, he had this, this ditch going up the driveway, and we would, we would pull that car just a little over the ditch and put the blocks underneath the tire so it wouldn't r- roll over. And so I get underneath there with the, with the oil pan, and I take the plug out, and I allow that oil to come out. And if you know anything about changing oil in a car, it, it can be hot sometimes. And I got my hand in there, and it burned my hand so bad I didn't know what to do. But I say that. To simply say this, could you imagine being placed in an entire tub of boiling oil? How hard would that be to fathom? Well, church tradition tells us that John the Apostle was the last surviving of the twelve, and perhaps even one of the youngest, if not the youngest, apostle that was around Jesus. And when persecution began to transpire, these leaders in Rome took him and they placed him in a giant tub of burning hot oil. And church traditions and some of the early church fathers tell us that he escaped miraculously by the grace of God. And he eventually was exiled to the island of Patmos where we believe he received that great vision of God and Jesus about revelation. And anyways, I say all that to say this is that, that when we come to the letter of 1 John, this, this letter is, is very similar to the gospel of John and its writing. And whoever wrote the gospel of John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And as we begin to study the gospel of John, we read about how the Bible says that that whoever wrote the gospel of John was the one whom Jesus loved and was the one who laid his head on the breast of Christ at the Last Supper. And we know that to be the Apostle John. And the terminology and the vocabulary and the, 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 the way that this letter is written in 1 John is so similar to the gospel of John that we have to conclude that it was John the Apostle. So John the Apostle was persecuted, but he was one of the only ones, to our knowledge, of the 12 apostles who lived to die a natural death. All the others were persecuted and martyred, and by the grace of God, John overtook 
that season where they placed him in the boiling hot, of wa- uh, hot oil. And we come to this letter. If you read the first verses here, you re- realize that it is not like Paul's letters. It's not like Peter's letter. He's not identifying himself, you know, so-and-so to this people by the grace and mercy of God. There's no, there's no opening uh, kind of salutation here in a sense. No beginning like the others. It begins right off the bat here with a reference to Jesus. And then as we begin to study this letter, we realize that it is a circular letter. That is, in Paul's letters, he's going to write about issues, and he's going to kind of chronologically and linearly walk through issues. But, but John here is circular. He talks about this subject, then jumps to this subject, then jumps back to that one, then jumps to another. And so John's writing, he is now an old man or an older man. You see, John grew up in the Jerusalem area. And, and around the late 60s AD, right before the temple was destroyed and right before some of the major persecution began to unravel, John left and found his home at Ephesus. And you have to understand, Jesus died somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. And so John left about probably 30 years after Jesus died. And now it is perhaps 30 more years, around 90-ish AD, when John is writing this letter. So John is an older man, 80s, perhaps even around 90 years old. And I want to encourage you with this thought today, that if you are in your 80s, or perhaps if you have graduated into your 90s, you can still be used by God in a great way. You don't have to be young. And listen, you don't have to be old. You can be anywhere in between to be used by God. But as he's writing this letter, he was combating an issue called Gnosticism of his day. And that comes from a Greek word that simply means knowledge. And these people were coming around and they were saying that they had this extra revelation and extra knowledge about Jesus and about the word of God. And the only way to attain enlightenment was to receive the knowledge that they had. And so John was combating this. And he was saying, hey, I I was there. I saw Jesus for my own. And they were, in in a sense, attacking the humanity of Christ. Now, we'll get into more of the details of this later on in our passage today. But, But there was this idea going around that Jesus was just not exactly who he claimed to be. It was attacking his deity and his humanity, and John was addressing this in this letter. And if you read verse 4, there's kind of many reasons why he's writing here, but I want to highlight three major ones. In verse 4, he's writing that they might have joy, that these believers might have joy in knowing that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the word of life. But then in chapter 2, verse 1, he's writing not just only for joyfulness to be experienced, but also for obedience to be lived out. In verse number 1 of chapter 2, he says, I write unto you that you do not sin. And so obedience was in mind. And then chapter 5 and verse 13, it's this idea of assurance. That you can know for sure and certainty that you are a child of God. So the theme of the book of 1 John is simply this, the certain truth of the certain God. And that's the title that I want to kind of label as today's message and the entire time that we study this book of the Bible on Sunday morning, the certain truth of the certain God. We can rest assured that God's word is true because it reveals the true word of God. 
And listen, as we go back into the last part of the very first century, we know that Gnosticism was in its infant stage, and then it began to take root in the life of the church and began to dive in. But John was, in a sense, the, the apostle that was first giving the message from God about this issue. And I do find it interesting that Paul wrote the vast, uh, the vast majority of the New Testament, but John is the one who had the final word. And here he's writing as a pastor to his church. And this, by the way, is a general epistle. And because the nature of its letter was probably a letter read by many churches in the Ephesus region. Remember, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He grew to become kind of like beyond a pastor, kind of like what people call today a bishop. And he was a pastor to the pastors. And, and the church at Ephesus became a mother church and gave birth to many churches in that world. And so today, I want you to be confident that you can know that you're a believer by obeying his word and by believing who Jesus was. So today I want to give you a key thought that's not only going to summarize my message today, but it's going to summarize really the entire book of 1 John. We think about a Christian. What exactly is a Christian? Well, I believe John, he is, remember, he's attacking, or excuse me, this, this ancient um, heresy has crept in and is attacking the true word of God, and John is combating it, and he's saying this, here's how you know somebody is a Christian. A Christian, here it is now, a Christian believes Christ is the Son of God, obeys the word of God, and displays the love of God. And throughout this book, John lays out three tests to be examined in every person's life. The test is this. Number one, do you believe Christ is the Son of God? Number two, do you obey the Word of God? And number three, do you display the love of God? You see, 1 John, it's, it's a fascinating book. It has all these comparing and contrasts. It's comparing and contrasting love versus hate, light versus darkness, the Antichrist versus the Christ, truth versus error, and the children of God versus the children of darkness. Now, that being said, Let's keep this mentality, let's keep this thought in our minds, excuse me. A Christian believes Christ is the Son of God, obeys the Word of God, and displays the love of God. And John is going to create this argument to, to identify if somebody is a heretic or if somebody is an unbeliever posing as a believer. And today I want to ask this question, this key question today. Is what is certain, what is, excuse me, the certain truth of the word of life? Today we're looking at these first four verses, the certain truth of the certain God pertaining to the word of life. And I want to draw your attention here to these first four verses, and I want to share with you five thoughts about what we can know to be certainly true about the word of life or Jesus Christ. Look at the first part of verse number one. It says, that which was from the beginning. In fact, would you read that out loud with me? That which was from the beginning. Let's read it again. That which was from the beginning. Here's the first thought today about the word of life. The word of life is the immutable truth of God. The word of life is the immutable truth of God. Now, if you're a student of the Bible here, and you read this first phrase in this book, it should remind you about a couple other phrases that occur throughout Scripture. 
It should take you back to Genesis chapter 1, where the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It goes back to the original creation. It goes back to John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Emphasizing Jesus and his role being involved in creation and how Jesus always existed. And it's interesting here, the same word was here in 1 John 1.1 is the exact same word used in John 1.1. And it gives the idea that he always existed in the past. That there was never a time when Jesus, the word of life, was ever created. So in other words, as Pastor English used to say, Jesus was and 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 was for all eternity, God. But then, as we think about the context John is writing here, I think there is an aspect of the internality or how Jesus has always existed and he always will exist and he is currently existing as God. But I believe it also brings us to Mark's gospel where it begins by saying the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And here John, it says that which was from the beginning. And I believe he's referring to the entire context here, going back to the time of the incarnation of Christ. You see, there was an attack on the incarnation of God coming and manifesting in the flesh. And John is saying, hey, listen, um, nothing has changed here. We believe that Jesus stepped into flesh. He was God and clothed himself with flesh. Imagine you go into your wardrobe and it's very, very cold outside. So you're going to get uh, an overcoat and you get your biggest, warmest overcoat and you put the overcoat on in a similar fashion. Just as you were yourself before you put the coat on and yourself after you put the coat on, God, in a sense, took the coat of humanity and put it on himself when he walked on this earth. And John is describing here that that has not changed. This idea that Jesus was and is and always will be the Son of God. Do you believe that he's the Son of God? Are you obeying the Word of God? And are you displaying the love of God? Hey, listen, the Word of life is the immutable truth of God. This is the greatest certainty in all the world is that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And now John is gonna bring in his argumentation here. Let's look at the second thought today. Not only the word of life is the immutable truth of God, but secondly, the word of life is the visible truth of God. The word of life is the visible truth of God. Look at the next part of verse one and into the the first part of verse two. Let's keep in mind, John is is now shifting and he's arguing, he is giving an argumentation from an eyewitness account. He says, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears, and I touched him with my own hands. The senses here. See, taste, and hear. Look at verse number one. It goes on to say that, which was from the beginning. It says, which we have heard. Gives the connotation that, that he was there, and he listened to the message being preached. Now, now let's, let me pause right here. When I was reading this passage, I began to think to myself, what in the world is John referring to when he says we? What could he be referring to? We. I mean, if he's writing this book, why is he using the word and term we? 
Well, I believe he's referring to those eyewitness apostles who are around and serving underneath Jesus Christ. So he is speaking on behalf of all the 12 apostles. And so he goes on to say, which we have heard. So it's not just me he's referring to, John. He's saying me and Peter and James and all the rest. And he says, which we have seen with our eyes. Now imagine you went to one of the hockey games this year at the Civic Center. They used to be the Express. I think now they're called the Railroad Dogs or something like that. I probably got the name wrong, so don't crucify me afterwards. But anyway, so you go there and you, you, see, you see the hockey players come out in the ring. You see them for the first time. And that's what this word gives the idea here. That, that we saw him at one point in the past. But then the next phrase here, it says, it, it goes on to say that, that we seen him with our eyes. And then it says that which we have looked upon. In other words, it gives the idea here that we only saw him, not only saw him for the very first time, but then we fixed our gaze. And for three years, we followed him around and watched him and observed, and observed him and everything that he said and everything that he did. We observed him heal those who were sick, raise those who were, who were dead, and, and gave life to those who had no life. We heard him preach and teach. We were witnesses. And then he says, our hands have handled the idea of touch here. He's saying, hey, listen, I not only witnessed him in his life and ministry, but I went to the grave and I, I have I've leaned upon him and given him a hug and shook his hand. And then after he was placed in that tomb, I went to the cemetery and I saw it was empty. And then for, for about 40 days, we saw him and we touched him with our own hands. Remember Thomas? doubted and he touched his hands and his side. John is speaking on behalf of all of them. We touched this one called Messiah. And it says here, the word of life. I think John's usage here is important here. He says the word of life, just this, this term logos in the original language, it gives the idea of the word that was spoken or, or in our, our mind here is the word that was living who spoke then. But it's the idea that, that he was the logos, but he was also the logos that lived in this life. And so here's the heresies that were going on. Gnosticism ultimately taught, they denied the incarnation of Christ. They claimed that matter was inherently evil and there's no way God could be incarnated with flesh because it was tainted. They claimed that flesh was completely evil, but the spirit was all good. And the only way to attain this enlightenment was the special knowledge and revelation that they had. And this gave way license to sin. So in other words, they said, you could live however you wanted to live, do whatever you want to do, as long as you had the proper knowledge of what we teach. And that's why John is writing out all these different things. Obey, obey, obey. Holiness, holiness, holiness. Don't sin. Because he's addressing this issue. But then there was another idea, another sect underneath this Gnostic uh, heresy. And they taught that Jesus wasn't a man of reality but he just appeared to be alive. He was an illusion. He was a phantom. He just seemed to exist. <laughs> it was mystical in their approach. Then there was another group who came on the scene and said that Jesus was a real man, but at the baptism, the spirit of Christ came down and lived among him. And then right before his death, he ascended off of Jesus and went up. And these were the issues he was dealing with. 
And so right here in this first verse and leading into the second verse, he's saying, listen, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears. I touched him with my own hands. He is the word of life. He had a physical body. He was fully man, but at the same time, fully God. The word of life. Now, check it out now. Look at verse 2. It says, for the life was manifested. That means it was revealed and we clearly saw him here. It says, and we saw him. We seen him. And we bear witness. In other words, he's getting on that witness stand. He is that martyr, if you will. This is the same word that we get martyr from in the Greek language. And it says, he was the one that testified. They were the ones and showing you that eternal life. So he is the word of life, but he also contained eternal life. And the only way to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. So you can't get that through Gnosticism or these other heresies. And you say, well, that was in the first century and a couple centuries after Jesus. So what about now? Is Gnosticism still alive today? Yes, it is still alive today. Anybody who claims that, that, you, can, that you need extra revelation outside this book right here is, is really teaching an ancient form of this heresy John was dealing with. Whether it's Mormonism, whether it's from the Kingdom Hall, whether it's Islam, whatever it is, it is an ancient form of Gnosticism. And it's heresy. And so Jesus was the visible truth of God. Remember what he said? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. In other words, he was the manifestation of God the Son incarnate. And we cannot deny his existence for 33 years. And it wasn't mystical. And he wasn't... A figure of our imagination wrapped in flesh. He was real. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. So the word of life is the visible truth of God. It is the immutable truth. He is the immutable truth of God. But now let me share with you thirdly today from the last part of verse two and into verse uh, number three. The word of life is the declarable truth of God. The word of life is the declarable truth of God. Look at the last part of verse 2. It says, We show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Then it says here, That which we have seen and heard, declare. Would you say declare with me? Declare. Say it again. Declare. And one more time, please. Declare. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. It's interesting. There's a lot of verbs going on here so far in verse 1 and 2. But these commentators and people who know a whole lot more about languages than I do say this is the very first important verb right here in our text. And so John is literally leaning, leading up to this word declare saying, hey, this is the word of life that was clearly here. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. And this is the one that we have been preaching and we're going to continue to preach and announce unto you. This word declare literally means to announce. So John is saying, we are to announce this word of life, Jesus. And he did that. He did that in the ancient world. The apostles did that. They, they hazarded their lives for the gospel's sake. They risked their lives, and many of them died a martyr's death. And John, by God's grace, lived to die a natural death, we are told, and and he was the final apostle preaching the word of God. Now, if you could imagine, John walked with Jesus for three years, perhaps the very youngest one. And then time goes on. He goes to Ephesus and he begins to pastor the church that Paul started from Acts chapter 19. 
And as he's there, this church became a mother church, and they begin to plant and, and start and establish new churches, proclaiming the good news of Christ and leading people to the Lord and discipling them. And so John ultimately becomes a leading elder in that region and in the ancient world. In other words, people came to him because he was an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so they came to him. He was a, 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 a great source. If you could just imagine some of, the, some of your favorite famous pastors today, that was John in his day. And what John had on all of our famous pastors of our day today is that John actually lived and saw him for three years and was commissioned by him. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the immediate context, and he's looking at John and the others and say, you are going to be my witnesses here and to the rest of the world. And John was that, and he declared that. And because he did that, each generation that followed began to do that. It's interesting, John mentored a guy by the name of Polycarp, and Polycarp mentored a guy by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was an early church father that lived in the late 100s, in the beginning of the early 200s. And he writes about John and quotes 1 John, claiming John wrote 1 John. It's fascinating. And because of his work that passed down the Polycarp, that passed down the Irenaeus, that passed down from generation after generation, now we're here today, we have the book of 1 John, and we're proclaiming the same word of truth to our generation that they did then. But my question for you today is, this is a declarable truth, but are you announcing this truth to the people that you know? Are you declaring this truth to the people that live in Roanoke? Are you sharing this message to the people that live in, in your household or your family? Are you telling the world about the good news of Jesus Christ? But now let me draw your attention to the last part of verse 3. Remember, a Christian believes Christ is the Son of God, obeys the Word of God, and displays the love of God. And, and today we're looking at the certain truth of the certain God concerning the Word of life. And the Word of life is the immutable, visible, and declarable truth of God. But fourthly today, I want to share with you this thought. The Word of life is the relational truth of God. The Word of life is the relational truth of God. Look at the last part of verse 3. It says that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus. The key word here is the word fellowship. Would you say fellowship with me? Fellowship. This is the word that we think of and that many people eventually would build fellowship halls. Now we have a white building down here. And certainly it is, it is um, you know, not decked out with... Um, with royalty or anything, any way, shape, or form. But it is a, a, a facility that we have used for all these years, and it is all that we need. We don't need, you know, all the fancy, smancy other things. All we need is the place to gather, and we can fellowship one with another. And in our context, what we use a fellowship hall for is to get together and eat food. Because, first of all, we're Baptists, and, and you're not a Baptist if you don't like to eat food. And so we gather around there, and we'll have these big meals every now and then. Not so much the last couple of years, but hopefully we'll get back to it very soon. But we would get there and we would get our plate and we would, we would put chicken on there. We'd put mashed potatoes on there. We'd get the green beans. We'd get the rolls. We'd get, we'd get the macaroni and cheese. We'd get all the desserts there, the cheesecake, the eclair cake, you know, all of it. You might drink water. You might drink soda. You might drink tea. You might drink lemonade. And we'd fellowship around the table. And we would do that because we're eating together, first of all, but also we're, we're getting to know each other. We're communing with each other. 
And I want you to say this, that is all good, and we should do more of that. But this word fellowship gives more of just the idea that you're going to sit down and eat dinner together. It gives the idea that, that we're going to have fellowship with each other to develop a long-term relationship or like a friendship, and then that's going to turn into a partnership. So it's an association and partnership in the gospel here. And it says that, that we're declaring this so that you can come be part of our family and so that we can partner together and go out into the world and get everybody, get other people to become part of our family. The idea in the modern church is simply this, is that we're going to meet one time, shake our hands, have coffee, and never see each other ever again. We're going to have uh, the sinner's prayer, and then we're just never going to walk into the church ever again. And I think all those things have their places. But the idea here is that Jesus came to tabernacle, to live among us, so that we could have a personal, relational relationship with him, if you will. So that it could all be personal. It could be a relationship, and it could be with the true God of the universe. And that would extend to where that we take that message that he proclaimed in his life to the others, so that they could have that same bond, that same relationship, that same fellowship, and that same partnership with Christ. Jesus obviously was a relational kind of man. He wasn't this person that, that, you know, in the modern church, you get to this level that as a pastor or as a keynote spiritual speaker, you get to this idea that, that you don't eat dinner with all the rest of us peasant Christians. You, you fly in a plane that is reserved for just people that has reached your statue of superhuman abilities as a preacher or a, a minister. But I never see Jesus doing that. In fact, Jesus walked around with sinners. Jesus lived amongst people like me and amongst people like you. Sinners contaminated by flesh. And so today, yes, we're called to be holy and separate and live godly lives, but we're called to do that in the midst of this world. And we are called to literally go into the darkest, deepest areas of our communities and share the light of the truth of the gospel with them so they can experience salvation by grace through faith. But then I want to share with you from the final verse, verse 4. It says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy might be full. The fifth and final thought today is this. The word of life is the joyful truth of God. Those Gnostics that John was referring to, most likely in his letter here, they didn't have the joy that John and his other believers and brothers and sisters had. And here, he is revealing to them that the only way to have joy is the truth of the gospel. Remember the days of Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, he was just, he, I say just a cupbearer, but he was second into command in the, in the Persian realm. And he is commissioned by the king to, to go back to Israel that he's never been to and that many of the people that went with them hadn't been to before, but, but they were Israelites and they wanted to go back to their home country after the Babylonian captivity and after Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was built. And then they came, Nehemiah came to rebuild those walls around the temple and the city of Jerusalem to fortify that place. But ultimately, they came not just to rebuild the walls, but to rebuild the people. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, 
verse 10. Nehemiah and Ezra are gathered together. They're reading the word of God and expounding the word of God. Revival breaks out. And and Nehemiah tells these people that, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And today, I don't know what you might be going through, but I want you to be encouraged today that the same strength and joy that the Apostle John had and those other early church believers had, even the, the extreme persecution they went through, the same strength and joy you can experience in your life no matter the trial, no matter the temptation, no matter the tribulation, and no matter the triumph. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher of the 1900s and perhaps late 1800s, if my memory serves me correct. In fact, he was a young famous prestige doctor who actually turned to be a preacher. One day after him and his wife walked out of a theater in London to see there a salvation, I think a salvation army band there playing an ensemble. They were just playing all these different instruments and somebody was open air preaching and and nobody was paying attention to them. But when Martin Lloyd-Jones looked at them in that moment, God called him to what he called a higher calling than healing those who were sick or trying to treat those who were sick. He was called to tell people about Jesus Christ and to preach his word. Jones ultimately surrendered his future prominent medical career to be a herald-er of the truth of God. People came to him and said, why Why are you doing this? You're going to give up so much. And his reply is, I have given up nothing. I have received everything. I bring him up to to share with you. He said this about joy when commenting on our passage. He said, so our definition of joy must somehow correspond to that. Joy is something very deep and profound. Something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less, and I am, and in him I am complete. Joy, in other words is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What can we be certain about? We live in an age of relativism, that what's true to you may not be true to me. But I submit to you today that we can be certainly true about this certain God and that John's letter reveals to us the immutable, visible, declarable, relational, and joyful truth of God, and that a Christian believes Christ as the Son of God, obeys the Word of God, and displays the love of God. But the test that we'll find out today, this is a test for all of us to examine, to get underneath the microscope of God's Word, and say, do we believe that Christ is the Son of God? Are we obeying the Word of God, and are we displaying the love of God? What's up, guys? Brian here again just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless.
Keep the faith.